Rav Amital was very successful at using the genre of stories to convey ideas. But he was also very, very enchanted with songs, and he sung a lot with us, and we gather with him and sing atishas, and sometimes Friday night he teaches a song in the Federal Simchas Torah night, be a special gathering by invitation only in his son-in-law's house. I always managed to scrape together an invitation to sit at a tish with a lot of vodka and a lot of drink, and he teaches us these songs. So how about a story about a song? We're not just here to tell stories about songs, but what do songs do for us? I think a lot of us feel that songs are very emotional. They trigger certain very deep spiritual slash emotional moments. There's a collectivism in song. When you're learning, you're learning by yourself. With your chavrusa, you're generally aware that you're in a base medrash with a lot of other people. But when you're singing, there's a bonding of emotions because the song unites people in a way that cognitive information can't. And I think there's been an explosion of Jewish music over the last, certainly, 30, 40 years in a way that Ramatel certainly wasn't living through. And a lot of the music is based on nicer tunes, more deeply spiritual tunes, more cat, tunes that catch you, tunes that inspire you. And there's, there's more of a turnover. We turn over from song to song more quickly. If you go back 50 years, people sang the same songs for 50 years. <laughs> Not necessarily supporting it, I'm just describing it. And I think also, and I've noted this a lot, especially in Chutzlaritz, there's a great emphasis on the music and less of an emphasis on the words. If you look at some of the songs in Israeli songs, you, or some of the more songs that have come out of Israel, the tunes aren't that catchy. They're, even, they're not even tunes, but... Uh, but the words are words that are very powerful. So for Ravamita, what did a song mean? It wasn't so much the tunes, but it was the associations that songs conjure. And therefore, songs have to be deep, deep songs that you sang repetitively, repeatedly, and for many years, and they were part of our history and part of our lore. So the, the, the song experience that I think a lot of people have today with quick turnover of songs, and what's the newest song, and what's the latest song, and with tunes that are more powerful than necessarily than the words that, that are associated with it. I think it's very different than the songs of Amitah had in mind and the songs that he taught us. And he teaches us these little ditties over Shabbos that barely had tunes. He would sit there at the table over Shabbos and get frustrated when we couldn't follow because these are songs that... And they were just like bum, 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 bum. These were not any tunes, but these were just words. And, and he would... Yeah, tishas, we have to repeat it after him and so one of his most famous stories about a song, which I think conveys what he saw in a song, was about a Moser. A Moser, as you know, was someone in town who, um, who rats out Jews. Before we enter the age of democracy, so most governments were capricious, or most governments were arbitrary, and they were stilted against Jews. So in order to survive, we had to lie. In order to survive, we had to cheat. Because we're not cheating a system. There's no system. We're cheating the cheats. So a lot of Jews today have a hard time transitioning democratic environments in which we all follow the rule of law. And of course, in our day, you're not a moser if you hand over information about a Jew. You're participating in democracy that ultimately is protecting the interests of every human being, including Jews. So, but in the old days, the greatest crime you could commit was to be a moser. So the moser one day walks out into the city square and they decide to get really angry at him. And this Rav Amitel told us this song, the story when we weren't singing well enough for on Friday night. He wanted to encourage us to sing better. Meditation, or forget when. So they all gathered in the city square, and they looked at the Moiser, and they said, Amalek, Amalek, they all started shrieking at him, you're Amalek, you're Amalek, you're ratting out Jews. So this Moiser felt very insulted. So he went to the local sponsors, Goyesha sponsor. So in, in 
and Yiddish Alor, the sponsor of a of a Moser or the irrational persecuting local Gentile authorities called the Poyer. It's a Yiddish word, the Poyer. The Poyer is the local Jewish local non Jewish governor governor. So the Moser went to his sponsor, the local Poyer, and he said, The Jews they're verbally abusing me then. He didn't talk in 21st century language. Me too, but the Jews, they're, they're hurting my feelings. They're, they're saying that I'm a Malik. <clears throat> so the Pyra made a decree that you can't say the word Amalek within a 10-foot radius of this person. So he walked down to the street the next day all happy and confident. No one can call him Amalek anymore. And the Jews are eyeing him. They're all gathered, all the Jews, him shoulder to shoulder. They're waiting for him to come out. And they look at him, and he looks at them, and they say... Zakef Gadar, which is the first word of Parshas Amalek. So he gets really insulted, runs to the par and says, they're saying the word Zakhor, which is the first word of Parshas Amalek, they're calling me Amalek again. So the pirate made a decree, you can't say the word Zakhor within a 10 foot radius. So he walks out all confidently, preening around the next day, what are the Jews going to do now? I've got them. And they all gather, they make eye contact, and they see him, and they go, Zakef Gadar, Zakef Gadar. And he's really furious. Runs to the par of the saying Zakef Gadol, which is a musical incantation on top of the word Zachar, which is the first word of Tekwami Amalek. So the par makes a decree. You can't say the two words Zakef Gadol, 10 foot radius. Next day he comes out. They've got nothing on him. He's cornered them. They look him in the eye. New context starts smiling at him and they go, ay, 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 So he runs back to the par and says, they're saying ay, 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 which sounds like Zakef Gadol, which is a musical incantation on top of which is the first. Says, I'm not a, I, I can't make a decree that the can't go I.I.I. within a 10-foot radius. So Ramitasa said, you see, the Jews have the ability to convey the neshama of a song even without words. So he said, uh, start singing, because we're singing very, very weakly because the song had no words, and sometimes it's harder to latch onto a song without words. So he said, start singing. So this is probably the most famous song story, but I would say that for Ramitasa, it wasn't really the tune as much, and it wasn't really the social experience, but it was that songs carry very deep associations. And the more entrenched the songs are, the more deep the associations. So here's a perfect story because the song was associated with the word Zachar, with the word Zakef Gadol, with Amalek, and that's what was so powerful. A couple, about 20 years ago, we gathered in Rav Yosef Tzvi Rimon's house in Alon Shvat to celebrate Rav Amital's 70th birthday. So all the staff and their wives were invited. And we went around a circle, and everyone had to tell their favorite Rav Amitel story. So everyone told their stories, a little intimidating, like whose story seemed to be a story competition. And then Tova Luchnesin told the following story. I'll never forget it. Tova said that the most inspiring moment of her life was that Rav Amitel had a very, very difficult time after the 73 war and the eight boys who were killed. Really, he lived... He lived the loss personally, he felt like it was his children it wasn't just the loss of the eight boys but a lot of other boys were badly injured and damaged and seriously hurt and went through hospital, hospital people were burnt in their tanks, it was a very hard time, he basically gave Ravarin the keys to the yeshiva and said you take over the yeshiva I can't run the yeshiva anymore, I can't function, and really, and Ravarin in his Hasbid for Ravamitel, talked about how Ravamitel was the first Rosh Hashiva to really live what in Hebrew called the shechol, the loss of a child, he really lived shechol he really brought shechol from parents to to Rebbeim. To, you know, the Rosh Hashim has to feel it also. It's a very, very meaningful part and, and a traumatic part of his life. So anyway, so now it's Purim 1974. And Purim 1974 
was the first time that the boys who had been to battle came back to the Shiva, because we think the 73 war ended in October, November. It really lasted months and months and months till things settled down, until it was safe to return from the front. So the war ended, and I think sometime in November, but late October. But the boys who had been, who had left yeshiva, had left yeshiva on Yom, on Yom Kippur. They left Matzah Yom Kippur. After saying Tfilas Yom Kippur, they literally left, and many of them didn't return. And here they were for the first time back, and it was a very traumatic moment for them, back in yeshiva, but without eight of their friends, and without so many others who had been badly maimed and damaged and injured. So they were sitting in the yeshiva, one part of them, what is he, poor me, going to laugh and sing and dance. And this is the first time. It was very raw. It was very traumatic. So they were all sitting there not knowing what to do. And Tava said she remembers sitting there not knowing what to do. And Avamitel came in and sat down with the boys on the floor and started singing Purim song with them, a slow Purim song. And evidently in the shtetl, there were a series of songs that melodically shifted from one song into another. So he went from Purim to this song, from Shana Yaakov to this song, to this song, to this song, to this song, slight melodic segues. And somehow the song makes its way back to Kol Nidre, because Purim is Yom Kippurim. And they would sing this in the shtetl, evidently. We would sing the song and melodically make your way back to Kol Nidre, and then end up singing Kol Nidre on Yom Kippur. Now, I'm sure they sang that song many times in the shtetl, but evidently, Tova said, that Ramitel sat with these boys who were last been in yeshiva on Kol Nidre, and now were Purim, and he took literally took them back to Kol Nidre, and everyone was sitting there bawling and crying and and, and shrieking like it was really a, a catharsis for them to go from Purim back to Kol Nidre, but melodically. So and again, these aren't I'm sure these were not top ten songs or catchy tunes by Shreki or by these are very very slight, nuanced songs, not really musically captivating, but the deep associations. And in this case, the association was going back from Purim all the way back to Yom Kippur. So Rav Amitala wasn't really about the, the, the catchiness of the tune or the spirituality of the song. It's very much the association that it, that it elicited within you, the song that you sing a lot in different contexts. And they tell us that in Hungary, they would take him out to the forest and they were teaching the Mashiach song. And the boys really believed that if you sang the song, as they were told by their little cheder teachers, if you sang the song with enough kavana, the Mashiach would come. He says, you remember this little kid looking up at the trees and thinking, Mashiach's coming, Mashiach's coming, he's going to hit those branches. And there's a little, I'll show you for it. So these weren't, it was a very different musical experience than today, where we have these Vishyamda, or these powerful tunes that, was very much, I'll call them ditties, they weren't even songs, but the associations that he was able to create for us were very powerful songs. Okay? I think I told this story in Elo. It's a story of Mendel and the Shtetl. What happened with Mendel and the Shtetl? So, and of course, what does the story reflect? So Mendel's task was to wake everyone in the Shtetl up during Chodesh Elo, to get them to dominate one time. And he was merciless, and he was relentless, and nothing could in any way... And basically became a nuisance to the entire city. And then it's Erev Rosh Hashanah, and everyone's in shul reciting slichos, and Mendel is absolutely exhausted. He's gassed. So everyone's reciting slichos. Slichos Erev Rosh Hashanah, one of the great build-ups to Rosh Hashanah. Who could miss it? Who, who's not intense? Mendel's sleeping in shul. So everyone starts taking little objects, their slichas books, little pieces of paper, crumpling them up and throwing it at Mendel to wake him up. At one point, Mendel looks at everyone all bleary-eyed. He says, why are you waking me up? I'm exhausted. Can't you let me sleep a little? I've been so tired. 
So they all look at him and say, Mendela, you kept us awake during all Chodesh Elul. You think now we're going to let you sleep. Mendela, you kept us awake. You didn't let us sleep during all Chodesh Elul. And now you want us to let you get a little bit of sleep. Servamital's tie-in of the story was that our role to, vis-a-vis the world is to play the role of Mendelet. For 2,000 years, we kept the world awake. Namely, we challenged the world religiously to reach monotheism from this ancient cesspool of paganism. We challenged the world to become moral, even though the ancient world was savage and cannibalistic and blood-drinking, and now the world is civil and rational and respectful of the human condition. So essentially, we've been the world's conscience. And being that we're the world's conscience, the world dislikes us for that. And now, after 2,000 years, all we, all we want to do is go to sleep in our own land, like Mendela wanted to go to sleep, Arab Rosh Hashanah, and now the world is hurling at us, whether it's hurling missiles, or hurling stones, or hurling invective, or hurling anti-Israel sentiment, but that the world is now. What did this story uh, represent? What, 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 what does this show us about Ramitah? A couple things. Um, more than a couple things. It's a, very, it's a very deep story if you just unpack it and, and distinguish its various layers. Number one, Ravamitel always spoke to us about anti-Semitism and the arc of anti-Semitism and the quote of the Gemara and Shabbos and Harsinai is referred to as Harsinai because that was the moment that Sinna first descended. This was the moment that Jew hatred first began. So it's, anti-Semitism is not based on this conspiracy theory that Jews are globalists or that Jews are liberal, that Jews are... It's based on that we're the world's conscience, we're the gnat, we challenge the world, we're we're an annoyance to the world because we refuse to allow them to sink into moral depravity or into theological confusion. And because of that, we're hated, and and that's the role of a Jew, and that's the challenge of a Jew. And the second related point is that there are metaphysical forces at work that we can't trace with ration or with anthropology or with history. If you interviewed your average anti-Semite and you asked him, why do you dislike a Jew? He won't quote the story of Mendel and Shtetl, he won't quote the Gemara and Shabbos, but there's something deeper that drives the human condition that is overarching. It isn't based solely on you and this individual and that person's discretion, but there are larger forces at work. So this was one of the things that Amitel spoke a lot about. It was very much inspired by Riff Cook. Riff Cook speaks about Kabbalah and metaphysical forces. Right, what do you, I talked about this last week, how do you establish the balance between freedom of choice that every individual chooses their own action and the larger historical calculus? We all know there's a terminist history, we all know that history is predetermined, pre-calculated. So on the other hand, human beings are free. So if human beings are free, are free there's, an endless, um, there's an endless algorithm of permutations and that should be based on the collective choices of every single individual from here going forward. So how can you talk about a predeterminism in history? So evidently there's some calculus, there's some, calcul- there's some calculating interface between individual expression, individual decision, and the larger collectivist experience. And the part of collectivist experience is going to be the predisposition to hate a Jew and to dislike a Jew because we're the, the world's conscience. So that's one of the things I think the story highlights. The second thing the story highlights is that Ramital taught us to, to view history. Um, I think sometimes modern history feels very different than prophetic history. Prophetic history, that was... Um, the ancients before science, the ancients wearing sandals, the ancients sailing on ships across the ocean, the ancients herding their sheep. We're modern people. We're in a different world, in a totally different reality. We have science. We have technology. 
we have reason, we have modern conveniences. The two worlds feel very, very different. That's why it's so hard for people to bridge the world. That's why you have polarization. People only buy into the ancient world. Let's say more of a Haredi, extreme Haredi approach. People think that Chazal's medicine should be adopted also. And really nothing about this world is redeeming or, or in any way meaningful. And then there are people who go to the opposite extreme and immerse themselves solely within the world of modernity have a hard time seeing the ancient world as authoritative and meaningful and, 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 and relevant. Um, and I think, Rav Amita, sometimes we, we don't read Tanakh in, in a relevant fashion. We don't look at Jewish history in a relevant fashion because that, that was King David and King Solomon and ancient coins and ancient mikvos and ancient flour mills. But we don't use those coins anymore. We use Bitcoin and we, we have credit cards and PayPal. And it just feels so odd when we look at a, discover a coin from, from David's dynasty. Okay, it's some relic to put at the museum rather than something which is relevant. Or Rav Amita, basically delivered relevancy to Tanakh and relevancy to Jewish history and that the ability to view contemporary modern experiences and stream them or view them through the lenses of ancient Jewish history, ancient Jewish texts, whether it's Tanakh. So here you have anti-Semitism and the challenge for the state of Israel and the challenge for the land of Israel. But the Ravami Tal could be reduced to Mendel and the Shtetl. It could be simply reduced to the role Jews have played, the role Jews will always play, and it's, it shouldn't be seen as a geopolitical confrontation. It should be seen as, of course, every confrontation has its own unique dynamics, but part of this classic role of a Jew, the, the challenge of a Jew, and, and Rav Amitel also spoke a lot about history being cyclical, and that's why it wasn't really in any way too, um, what's the word, he, he always tell me, lowly drugage, lowly drugage, that was his phrase, don't, don't get too excited, whatever history is happening, it will turn around, whatever trends there are in society, it will turn around, history has a way of accounting for itself, history has a way of balancing itself out, and when you live 20, 30 years, you haven't lived 20 years, most of you, so you get very caught up in the moment, it's very hard to see the sleep, because there's no source basis of comparison, so when you see trends, you just assume those trends will continue on their trajectory, will continue to surge, and all of a sudden history will be reshaped. When you have a little bit more experience, you're able to see, oh, there are trends, oh, there are cycles. Things, the needle moves one way, and then the needle moves back. And there are different cycles in culture, different cycles in history. And um, Rami Tal had that cyclical sense of nature, of Jewish history, and, and therefore he, he didn't feel overwhelmed by any one particular challenge to Jewish history. Um, I think what it also did is that it reminded us that we have a job and a role in this world as children of Avram, as representatives of our Kaddish Baruch Hu. I've said it so much, it probably seems very much of a given to you. What is the role of a Jew in history? How are Mekadashem Shemayim? And for me, that was very explosive, that our Kiddush Hashem was not how we behaved in public when we went to a museum or how we behaved in public when we uh, went to a baseball game or a football game. But our Kiddush Hashem was the role of a Jew in this world as standing for Hashem the role of the Jew in this world as representing Hashem, representing Hashem's values, that literally there's this interaction between us and the nations of our world that could be encapsulated or distilled as Mendel and the Shtetl, that we are the Mendel and we're living in the Shtetl. And again, it's, it's always this, this dynamic between universalism and nationalism. On the one hand, we have a unique calling, but we're living in the Shtetl. We're, we're, part, we're organically connected to that Shtetl. So people have a very hard time in today's world merging universalism and parochialism and you go back to Yudalevi and there's a very strong nationalist tendency but we're living together we were, I mentioned this year when we lived at the Kuzari that we are the core and the nations of the world are the peel people look at that as very 
bigoted and racist. In some ways it isn't, because it's still one organic fruit. I mean, we're no longer farmers. We don't really appreciate how important the peel is. And we, for us, a peel is, oh, throw the peel in the garbage. It's going to stink. It's going to rot. The nations of the world are the peel. They must be the, the deplorables, the, 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 the degraded parts. Of, they're not. They're just different parts of one, one cohesive unit. And Mendel lives in the shtetl. So this story is a very simple story about Mendel and the shtetl. But it, it reminded me a lot of, of the cyclical and pan-historical nature of anti-Semitism, of the role of a Jew in history, of the cyclical nature of Jewish history, and of anti-Semitism boiling down to what role we're expected to play in historical unfurling. Okay. Let me try to frame this story the right way, because it's, it's, I'm, I'm trying to put these stories into context, into not just stories, but how they interact with the entire web of Ravitaal's thought. Ravitaal was a very sophisticated thinker. And part of sophistication is analysis and seeing multiple facets of, of every aspect rather than just seeing things linearly. Um, I, I've told you this joke before that Ravitaal would speak for an hour and a half on a Friday night minimum. And I'd come home sometimes in the summer and we'd make Kiddush at 10 o'clock at night, 10.30 at night, and my wife would say, what did Ravarin speak about tonight? I would say, we said that Moshe was a good person. And if we're looking, it took him an hour and a half to say that, I could say that in five minutes. But with Ravarin, everything was always panoramic and broad sweeping, and what does good mean, and good to Hashem, and good to people, and where the dangers of good, and where does good come from, and how do you... It was always... It wasn't, it wasn't just analyzing in a linear fashion, but very, very broad and multivariable and multilayered. And there's a danger with sophistication that there's a certain authenticity that can be compromised because you're not processing experiences in existential fashion, you're processing them in very cognitive fashions. You're not just, let's say, uh, your wife would say, I love you. You'd say, what does love mean? And different ways of love. Do you mean this love and that love? So you may be understanding different applications of love, this, but the authenticity, the immediacy, the directness may be compromised. And in many other, in many other times, eh? I told you before, that's part of the difference between Tehillim and between um, Shir Shir. Tehillim is not a very sophisticated safer. It's a very encompassing safer. It's a very broad safer. It suffuses all aspects of the human experience. But each pasuk, if you just strip it down, is a very straightforward pasuk. And whereas each phrase in Shir Hashirim is sophisticated and has multiple layers of interpretation and is a metaphor and it's, it talks about metals and landscapes and animals and, and, and David Amal's world is much smaller. And they, so there's always in life a clash between analysis, sophisticated thought, human convention, and on the other hand, authenticity, genuine, and, and this, the trick is to find the two. The trick is to be able to weave the two together. And I think in general, Rav Amitav would always help us maintain the balance. Obviously, Rav Lichtenstein stressed the analysis and the thought and the broad-mindedness, and Rav Amitav was very grounding, just spoke a lot of Tari Lebeinu Le'evdecha B'emes. And he never articulated it this way, oh, be careful because Rav Lichtenstein's risk or lambdas will take you away from Emes. But it, we felt as if there was this yin and yang mix that was taking place, and specifically with tefillah. With tefillah, so sophistication, because in tefillah it's so important to have a dialogue with Hashem and to have a conversation that's authentic, too much short. Let's say you sit there 
You know, some people, for example, are so intent on thinking about every single kavan of Shema Yisrael, what does the ayin represent, what does the dalad represent, what does the ches represent, and so many mathematical calculations, that the Nebuchadnezzar Machel Shemayim. Sometimes people get so immersed in sophisticated thought that simply standing in front of our Kodesh Baruch Hu, Machel Shemayim, is lost. And, and certainly, even if you are Makal Machel Shemayim, some of your resources are being dedicated to thinking about the ayin and the dalad and the ches and the... So in tefillah, Rav Amital was always very much trying to shrink tefillah down to a more simple, less sophisticated fashion. It's based on Chassidus. famous story of Baal Shem Tov, probably one of the most storied uh, incidents where the farmer comes into the shul and everyone's davening, all they can do is play the flute or whistle or whatever, and Baal Shem Tov says his davening is the purest because it's coming from an authentic place. And somehow human convention strips away that authenticity. And Rav Amitav would always quote to us, there's a parish, one of the French Rishonim, called the Rashmi Kinon. So the Rashmi Kinon is quoted by the Rivash and many other Rishonim says that when you daven, you should daven like a baby. So this is the less known, lesser known Rav Amitav baby reference. When you daven, you should daven like a little baby, you don't know what you need, you don't know what you're, what you're asking from Hashem. A baby just cries out and says, he has some instinctual, instinctual need to cry to a parent and to beg for their need. So when you daven, you can be too sophisticated. And Rav Amitav always tried to balance and calibrate. And specifically during the Elah, where there's a reduction of human ego and there's a reduction of human faculty and you're exhausted and you've davened and what more can you possibly think of and everything that's to be thought of has already been articulated in your mind during Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. So during the Elah, Rav Amitav would very often migrate towards that place of a more authentic tefillah enabled by a reduction of human convention. This is all the backdrop for the story. But again, the backdrop is important because there was something Rav Amital stressed in general, this balance between sophisticated intellectual analysis and pure, authentic, genuine human experience. In tefillah, it was particularly acute. And within tefillah, Ni'ila was the moment in which a lot of these ideas were stressed to us. Now, here's the story. Evidently, Reb Levi Yitzchak, who was a very, very well-known Baltvila, Sheikh Tzibor, very, very fabled, very legendary Baltvila, made up his own Kaddish one year on Yom Kippur, the famous Kaddish of Rebbe Levi Yitzchak, was once davening Ne'ila, so that's why it's a perfect, it was a perfect Ne'ila story. And he got to the end of Tfilos Ne'ila, and all of a sudden, before he made the final bracha, which is Baruch Atah Hashem, Melech Mochel V'Solech L'Avonaseinu V'Lavonaseinu Yisrael, before he finished the bracha, he paused and he stopped. So a couple of seconds passed and he was still silent. A couple more seconds passed, he was still silent. All of a sudden, people in Shul are getting a little antsy. It's Neila, the sun is setting, you want Yom Kippur to end properly, and there's a baby Yitzchak, and he's just sitting there, standing there as if he's in a trance. Silent as a tree. Minutes pass, he doesn't say anything. Finally, it's the last two, three seconds before Yom Kippur is about to end, and he blurts out the end of the bracha, blurts out the end of the bracha, and he finishes Yom Kippur. So now it's post-Yom Kippur, and they're all in the courtyard, and they're saying, Rebbe, what happened? What, what, what went on? Why were you quiet, and then all of a sudden you blurted out the bracha? So Rebbe Yitzchak said, I was davening, and I saw that in Shemayim, my tefillos weren't being successful. My tefillahs were glancing off of Shemayim. Whatever tefillah I offered, they weren't accepted in Shemayim. So there's no purpose in offering another tefillah that would be pointless and be futile. But then I remembered a trick that my sisters and I used to play on my mother. 
Levi Yitzchak was very connected to his mother. He would always quote himself as Levi Yitzchak ben Sarah. Very interesting. He had a very close relationship. Levi Yitzchak ben Sarah. He always, I remember the trick. My sisters and I would play on our mother. What trick? My mother had a little candy cabinet. She kept the candies, the sweets, in a little cabinet. And she would allocate them whenever we deserved them. But sometimes my sisters and I really wanted candy, even though we had no merit, we no deserve. So we'd gather outside of the ca- candy cabinet, and we'd wait for my mother to come by. As my mother would pass by, one of us would blurt out a bracha, and then our mother would be forced to give us some candy, so it shouldn't be a bracha levatala. So this is a trick we played on our mother to make a bracha before she had a chance to respond, and then she'd have to give us candy so that we wouldn't uh, misuse the bracha. I said, that's a great trick. Let me play it on Hashem. There's no way for me to daven. Let me just say the bracha, Baruch atah Hashem, Melech mochel v'salech l'avonaseinu, that you forgive our sins. And now, Kaddish Baruch Hu, you have to forgive our sins because there shouldn't be a bracha l'avatah. So that's the trick I played on Hashem. So I waited, and the last two, three seconds, I realized I could play this trick on Hashem. Now look, part of this is chasidus. And in chasidus, when you daven to Hashem, there's a certain chutzpah that you bring to feel that Hashem wants you to be mechutzaf with Him. So take out that part for a moment. But for Ramitel, this was, again, that's how you daven to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, like you're talking to your mother in front of a candy cabinet. That's how you treat HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And the answer was evidently that there's a certain level of tefillah which is so innocent, which is so sinewy, it's so raw, it doesn't have any layers to it. It's so seminal that you're talking to Hashem like a little child asking a parent for candy without all the sophisticated kavanos and ilah may or may not evoke. So whenever we daven, Yerav would try to push us to a place in which sophistication was not necessarily enhancing our tefillah, reduce our tefillah, make it more simple, more direct, more passionate, and particularly our ni'ilah, and this story helped me capture that entire approach. Okay?